This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. On Tuesday afternoon of May 12th, 2022, Mark Abbott sat in front of a microphone before a judge in the spacious courtroom four of the federal courthouse in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. He was there for two reasons. One, to enter a plea of not guilty for his charge of felon in possession of a firearm. And two, to argue that he should be eligible for release on bond despite the government's position that he posed a flight and safety risk. The prosecutor went down Abbott's list of criminal offenses, which includes making a run for it when he was to appear for sentencing in the speed bump meth distribution conspiracy in the 1990s. The bottom line is that Mark Abbott remains in the custody of the U.S. Marshals. Judge Abby Kreitz-Leone gathered some evidence from the prosecutor and told Abbott she would need a few days to review everything before making her decision whether he should be allowed to be released on bond or whether he should remain in federal custody. Abbott is being represented by John Lynch, a lawyer who was appointed by the government. Timothy Willis is prosecuting the case. The hearing was informative for several reasons. We learned a bit about the weapons charge, we learned a little bit more about Mark Abbott's previous crimes, and we learned more about Abbott's health. Prosecutor Willis said the discovery in the case includes 65 pages, 17 photos, and one minute of video. He also said the government seized a computer and other devices. The judge set a deadline for June 24th for the defense to review the evidence for a discovery conference on that date. The prosecutor mentioned that a search warrant was granted for guns and drugs, and he said in addition to the gun, they found an ounce of methamphetamine and a half ounce of cocaine. He said Mark Abbott was cooperative during the search and admitted to being in possession of the drugs and the gun, and he took them to the places where they could be found. Mark Abbott appeared with short gray hair and a clean-shaven face. Abbott spoke with a raspy voice that sounded much older than his age of 53, and much different than his voice in the telephone call with Kevin Williams that you heard earlier in the podcast. At some point around the time of his arrest, Mark Abbott was hospitalized with a series of mini-strokes. His attorney announced to the judge that Abbott's vision was impaired, and he could not read the indictment. Instead, Lynch had to read it to him. Lynch argued that his client's health was one reason he should be allowed out on bond so he could get good medical care. Prosecutors said that Abbott could continue the medical care he needed under the supervision of the U.S. Marshals. He added that the medical staff at the hospital cleared Mark Abbott as safe for confinement. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. I went around the car to the driver's side and opened up the door, and that's when we saw Michelle. So Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir. Maybe he had said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I didn't take for a split second. I said, huh, that's not Mark. I said, that's Matt. Mark Abbott or Matt Abbott were vampired or prey. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey, man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I, 
the right price. He said, uh, you know, he said, Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says, it's about time a younger man gets in there. He said, like you, you can get in there and make some good Paychecks money. from a bullshit They company. never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. So Willis went over Abbott's criminal history, much of which I laid out in episode 15. In addition to explaining to the judge that Mark Abbott fled during the sentencing phase of the speed bump case, the prosecutor also talked about the forgery sentencing in 2015. In that case, Mark Abbott was being pulled over for an alleged DWI when he threw his wallet out the window. When the officers pulled him over, Mark Abbott gave his name as his twin brother Matt. He was taken to the police station for fingerprints and signed the fingerprint document as his brother Matt. So that's where the forgery case came from. And that's the second time Mark Abbott's been caught giving his name as his brother on a DWI stop. The first was in Cape Girardeau in 1991. Lynch responded by saying that Abbott was not actually charged and sentenced for the DWI in that case, only the forgery. He also told the judge that the criminal history brought forward by the prosecutor was mostly old history from the 1990s. He told the judge that Mark Abbott is a much different person than he was in his 20s. He went on to add that Mark Abbott, quote, has a terrible substance abuse problem, unquote. He said that's not an excuse, but he wanted the judge to take that into consideration when deciding whether to release his client on bond. This is interesting in the context of the federal gun charge. The federal law states anyone, quote, who is an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance to ship or transport in interstate or foreign commerce or possess in or affecting commerce any firearm or ammunition or to receive any firearm or ammunition which has been shipped or transported in interstate or foreign commerce. I've heard through the grapevine that Mark Abbott was not in possession of this weapon for very long, perhaps just a few minutes before the raid occurred. What this law is stating is that if you're a drug user or an addict, it's against the law to receive any firearm. It doesn't really matter how long you've possessed it. So Mark's attorney has admitted that his client is a drug user and addict in the first appearance of this case. The defense attorney told the court that Abbott's mother had cash willing to put up for bond, and Mark Abbott owns his own home outright, and he could use that to secure a bond as well. Lynch also argued that because Abbott cooperated with officers, he demonstrated he was not a danger or a threat to flee. He added that Abbott had viable employment. So those are the high points of the hearing on Tuesday. Judge Kreitz-Leone seemed to indicate that she would make a decision on bond sometime this week or soon. As it relates to the Michelle Lawless murder, it never came up. But when the prosecutor announced that officers had seized a computer and devices, I instantly wondered whether there was any information, discussions, or evidence seized there that might help the lawless murder case. It was announced that Mark Abbott was still on state parole at the time of his arrest. It wasn't explained in court why this felony weapons charge is being pursued by the federal government. It was revealed that an officer with the SEMO Drug Task Force executed the search warrant. 
My suspicion is that the DEA would like to pull information out of Mark on a larger case they're working on, and as we know, Mark has given up information before. And that brings us to a couple of things to note as to why federal charges are significant. The first, which we've talked about before, is it seems the feds are more at arm's length than local entities regarding Mark Abbott and his previous history, including his interactions with the lawless case. Secondly, the sentencing guidelines are different between the feds and the state. In Missouri, a felon in possession of a firearm for the type of record that Abbott has is a Class D felony with a maximum of 7 years in prison. The federal maximum sentence is 10 years. A third reason this is important is because of a relatively new law passed in Missouri that is currently tied up in the courts. Protection Act, or SAPA. It declared that federal laws that could restrict gun ownership among law-abiding Missourians as invalid. Some in law enforcement, including key leaders in Butler County, have distanced themselves from working with federal officials for fear of being fined $50,000. I honestly don't know if that applies here since we're talking about law-abiding citizens and there is a state law against felons owning guns, but overall, the law has had a chilling effect of locals working with the feds on gun crimes. CBS's 60 Minutes reported that several state agencies pulled officers from federal task forces that targeted illegal guns. In addition, 60 Minutes reported, the Highway Patrol's Information and Analysis Center stopped providing investigative support to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. In a different news story from KRCG-TV in Columbia, Missouri, the mayor there, Brian Treese, said, quote, there's very little cooperation they can have with the federal government in terms of enforcing federal gun crimes in the state of Missouri. Actions like intercepting illegal guns, catching felons in possession of illegal guns, or even cooperating with federal databases that may track stolen guns or shell casings. I don't know how all this is playing out behind the scenes. All I know is that the case was started at the local and state level, but is now being handled by the feds. That could simply be because Abbott's biggest criminal sentence came under federal authority, but he's had a handful of state crimes too, including one that he was still serving parole on. It could be, like I said, that the feds are working a bigger case and want to pry information out of Abbott. The reason could even go back to the legal description that I read earlier. Again, it's a federal felony for any drug user or addict to even receive a weapon under the law. I couldn't find any such provision in state law. This is what the Missouri statutes say. A person commits the offense of unlawful use of weapons if he or she knowingly possesses a firearm while also knowingly in possession of a controlled substance that is sufficient for a felony violation. There are a number of reasons why the feds may be on the case, and it may take some time before we know and understand that. I have been playing some phone tag with a spokesperson in the federal prosecutor's office. If we connect and I get clarification on this jurisdictional question, I'll be sure to provide an update. Until we hear otherwise, I'm assuming this arrest has nothing to do with the lawless case. But that doesn't mean it won't turn up evidence in the lawless case. Before we end this episode, I'd like to take a moment here to offer a response regarding episode 15. In that episode, I referenced a portion of a transcript from Mark Abbott's sentencing in the speed bump case. In doing so, I mentioned several names who snitched on Mark according to a statement by DEA agent Gregory. I said basically that everyone snitched on everyone. 
Then I received a message from Jeremy Floyd, one of those names, and he insists that Gregory was incorrect in mentioning his name. So I'm going to read you the email sent by Floyd. Hi Bob, this is Jeremy Floyd, and as you have noted in your podcast, I was indicted on the speed bump case. I have the speed bump files in its entirety. Nowhere will it say that I ratted or snitched on anybody. In fact, out of 36 people in the first two rounds of indictments, only myself, Leo Renfro, and a guy by the name of Guerrera were the only three who did not give any information. Because I did not give any information, I was given 156 months and 60 months supervised release totaling 18 years which I completed. I am not proud of my past and I have paid my debt to society, however I pride myself on the fact that I am not a rat, never have been, never will be. Ask anyone, they will tell you I ain't no snitch. I'm not sure where you got your information that I gave info on Mark Abbott, but I need a redaction or clarification that anything I might have said about anyone ever was that I knew them, I never gave any statement that could be used to bring charges or add information to a pending case on anyone and I would like it corrected. After spending 18 years in maximum security penitentiaries, all I really have is my name and I am proud that when people hear my name they say that's a solid dude. Hell, I've done time for shit that wasn't mine because I wouldn't give up names and that pissed them off. So that's the end of the email. So this isn't a retraction. I directly and accurately quoted court testimony given by a law enforcement officer who investigated the case. After receiving Floyd's email, I reviewed the speed bump investigative files I have from Missouri. I found Floyd's name mentioned many times, but not as a source giving information. So let this serve as a clarification with additional information. For the record, Jeremy Floyd says he did not snitch on Mark Abbott or anyone else. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. Coming soon on The Lawless Files. The Abbott family definitely had connections to the Mafia. The Mafia's illegal activities included gambling, theft, extortion, prostitution, and most likely drug movement dating back to at least the 1960s. That's over 50 years ago. These mobster roots date back to before the Abbott twins were born. This is the environment in which Mark and Matt Abbott were raised. Another thing to consider is how these illegal activities evolved over time, the churn of the players, and the evolution of the roles. Regardless, as time passed, illegal money continued to flow through southeast Missouri and southern Illinois. So the question is, do mobsters still have an influence today? 